0: Hi guys, I am hopping on before the episodes announced that today's episode is going to be this season's finale. You may have noticed that I, over the last, honestly, few months have struggled to post consistently and I really hope you guys have enjoyed this season and every minute of this COVID production. When I stopped flying so much and we were all stuck at home, I had a very public intention of highlighting thought leaders and providing access to our community through stories, through contact information, which many guests, I think there's been about 52 episodes or so, have given. And I also had a personal goal separately of learning how to speak publicly better. Not only have I felt like I've definitely made progress on both of those goals, I've just enjoyed this so much. It's been an honor to spend this season with you all. And um, I mean, I see like how many minutes were spent across like 30 countries or something crazy like that. And I'm just blown away and humbled because literally, I think you've heard me say, if you're a longtime listener, is that there's nothing more valuable than time and that you have given it to me is incredible. But um, between work being totally busy with the latest $50 million raise and baby number three around the corner, like I'm literally packing my hospital bag, I knew it was time to put a pin in this until whenever it is right for the next season to start. Maybe I'll show up before the next season starts on your Spotify or Apple podcast feeds or wherever you listen because there are a few guests have been mid-scheduling and we've had to push things off for a bit because of conflicting schedules. So may- maybe one of those I'll, I'll add in as a treat if the scheduling aligns. But for now, enjoy today's season one finale with a sister and a friend and a community shaker. I don't think she needs a whole lot of introduction. Ibtihaj Mohamed is... Remarkable. And so enjoy today's episode and thank you guys so much. Ibtihaj, I'm so excited. Same. (laughs) Okay, well, before I kind of before I even have you introduce yourself, as I noted earlier, for those listening, this is the season finale. And what you might not know is that I actually started this podcast after a conversation with you. The idea was floating around my head. My sister-in-law was like, just do it. And you and I were chatting on the phone. I was going on a walk one night and you were just talking about something that like was a regular mundane thing. And you brought up this reference of your life something that had happened while you were training for the Olympics that was like so incredible and like really shaped you and you were using it as a lesson for this particular experience we were discussing and I was like oh my gosh I'm like gatekeeping the world from these incredible people who are just extraordinary and I literally made a logo the next day did you know that
1: I did not know that that's so cool
0: <laughs> yeah but now that I'm done with that since I had to get it off my chest how would you describe yourself
1: um, well, I mean, that's such a good question. I feel like I'm pretty easygoing. So I would just describe myself as a person who wants to show up in the world in meaningful ways. And I just want to be a good person. That's how I would describe myself.
0: And for those who might be writing a biography about you, would say a good person who is also an Olympian medalist, uh, a Barbie, like literally a Barbie. There's a Barbie after her. Um, An author, and in fact, a best-selling author author at that, are some of the many accolades you have earned, mashallah.
1: Oh, mashallah, I appreciate that.
0: And so let's take it back. Um, Where were you born?
1: I'm from Maplewood, New Jersey. It's about 30 minutes west of New York City.
0: And... um, My understanding, though, is like as you were raised, you were an athlete, but you weren't like a fencer, right? Tell me a little bit about your background
1: that kind of got you to fencing. So I grew up um, in an African-American household. Uh, What that means is that you don't really have a choice in playing sports. It's kind of like a rite of passage. And it's more so in in my family, you know, what sport you played. I think that was um, this overarching question of, which sport you would play. And I remember my mom and dad putting um, the town rec book in front of us that had, you know, this alphabetical list of different sports you could try in town. And I tried so many different sports. But for me, in each of those different sports, they didn't have, um, you know, like the uniform was always an issue, even before I wore hijab. I started wearing hijab at 12 years old, but um, you know when I played tennis or I ran track. I don't know like how familiar you are with uh, track, but the girls wear singlets and like what I always considered to look like underwear. Uh, But even before I wore hijab, my parents were like, "Absolutely not! You're never going to wear that." Uh, So I remember spending time at sporting goods stores with my mom, trying to match up team uniforms with you know, like a capri spandex or, you know, a a fitted t-shirt or something that would still allow me to feel a part of the team, even though my uniform was a bit different. And uh, at 12 years old, my mom and I were just driving past the local high school and we saw, we were in our car and we were at a light and we could see into the high school cafeteria. And all we saw were, you know, kids full uniform, all white, long pants, long white jackets they had on what we thought were helmets at the time. And they were, you know, fighting with swords. And I remember my mom saying, I don't know what that is, but when you get to high school, I want you to try it out. And it was just this effort on my mom's part to get me involved in a sport where, you know, finally I would be in uniform with my teammates.
0: That resonates so much because I grew up playing soccer and not only are the shorts already short, the culture was to pull the shorts up higher. <laughs> and this is before hijab was like uh, diversified in the United States, I would say. So mm-hmm. I, I literally remember wearing just like oversized pants and always feeling like, okay, I'm going to show up and be a dork. So I'm going to come through in my game, but like, I I won't be cool. I will never be a cool girl on this team.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it was, it was tough. And like, I think there are more options now. I mean, you are definitely also one of the reasons why there are more options is there are more professional athletes that wear hijab, like things have happened. Um, So it's incredible that what got you to fencing was just kind of an appreciation, but also like an enablement of your identity without having to compromise.
1: Yeah, I always say that, you know, I didn't find fencing, but fencing kind of found me. It was this unique opportunity to be able to express myself through sport without having to compromise my faith at all. And also just being a kid and being in uniform as a hijabi, I mean, it's tough to put it into words, but it is a really freeing experience. And only only athletes who wear hijab, I think, that could really resonate um, with that sentiment. Out, I mean, I don't even know what other sports outside of like fencing and I don't know maybe ice hockey or something, but it's really cool to not have to like stick out by a sore thumb, like a sore thumb, and be identifiable in that way especially as like a preteen that's you know all we want to do is like blend in Mm. right you know like you don't want to stand out in that way because I don't know being a preteen or even a teen for whatever reason it's just this really awkward phase Uh, but I just found sport to be a space where I could truly show up as my authentic self and not be labeled as the Muslim kid, or as the girl, or as the black kid, I was just, you know, like a fencer, like everyone else. And for me, what I think really helped me fall in love with the sport was that it was about your skill and how good you could be, and that was just determined by how hard you were willing to work. And that was just one thing that um, a characteristic that I feel like I've always had is I've never feared from working hard. Um, I actually. I love that I'm able to work hard, you know, to get what I want, even like in the classroom. Um, So I think that's what really helped me fall in love with the sport of fencing.
0: And yeah, actually, as I think about the sports that I spent a lot of time doing, as you were talking, I've spent a lot of time on the slopes, first skiing and then snowboarding. And I'm like, oh, huh, maybe that's why. (laughs) Right. That's a sport that you can definitely blend in. You don't have to think twice. Like I I was nine. I got kicked out of raging waters out of a water park, effectively, like uh, an attraction at nine years old, because I put a shirt on over my bathing suit and I was told I was going to drown. Like for a nine year old, this is before September 11th, mind you. And before kind of the trauma that came with our identities that we persisted through and and overcame. Um, Things like that would happen like that. That affects a nine year old, dude. I thought twice when I went to a public pool after that, right? And um, so you, you come from a big family, mashallah, and your brother, I know, was an athlete and stayed stayed an athlete. Did your sisters have the same experience where they were also looking for sports that would accommodate kind of the hijab and the identity?
1: No, uh, we all played sports. Uh, my I have one sister who played basketball. She actually played volleyball in college. And um, my younger sister, Faiza, kind of followed my footsteps into fencing, and I actually coached her in high school. And as her like, coach, I was able to, at least I coached her in her senior year, I feel like I was able to try to protect her from mm. some of the, the things and adversity that I faced and that still creeped its way into to sport, especially at the high school level. Like, as a kid, you don't realize the lengths that adults and coaches officials, the things that people are doing to make you as a kid feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. to be unfair in the way that maybe they officiate or the way that they you know as the gatekeepers or like regulators of that sport, the way that they're you know treating the kids who who maybe religious minorities or ethnic minorities. And I saw so much as a kid, but to be honest, what I've realized in sport, even like in the sport of fencing, I noticed the lengths that coaches, officials, the parents of other athletes that they would go to, to not only make me feel uncomfortable as a kid who wore hijab but also who was black in a predominantly white sport. But, you know, honestly, like if I if I weren't any good, if Faiza wasn't any good, if our team were not, you know, the one of the best programs in the country, if not the best, I don't think that people would, you know, blink twice at mm. our participation. But I think it was honestly just feeling intimidated by us in our existence. And not just because we were a part of this championship program, but also because we ourselves were a piece of that puzzle, you Mm -hmm. know, a strong piece of that puzzle. And even Faiza more so than me, like Faiza is a multi-time individual state champion in fencing, And um, she was just really, really, really good and to see the efforts that coaches went through and officials went through to make her feel uncomfortable on honestly it's sickening to even think about but i can't tell you how many times as a coach i was asked to and even back when i competed as a kid my coaches uh, high school fencing coaches high school volleyball coaches were asked to provide this letter that had been notarized by the Board of Education saying that I was wearing hijab for religious reasons. And this was something that as kids who wear hijab, and you've probably seen in the news, that's something that your coach has to have all the time. And it depends on your state. But in the state of New Jersey, this is something that our coach has to carry with them at all times. And it became a tactic that other you know, schools would use to throw athletes off of their game. So it's something that, you know, other coaches say competition starts at 9am. The coach coach from a opposing high school will ask to see this proof that, you know, you're wearing hijab for religious reasons at 850, 850. Right. So you have a coach scrambling to find the paper that has to present to the bout committee that then has to say that this athlete is allowed to fence. But I saw it firsthand used as a way to Uh, throw my sister off her game to affect her mentally. And it's unfortunate, you know, one that that kind of that type of legislation even exists. But at the same time, the way that to me, coaches and officials would use it to penalize or to, you know, try to inhibit, you know, the performance of an athlete, it's, you know, it's nauseating. But I always felt like I was I had an opportunity to protect my sister. And that's how I saw coaching my sister in in her high school, senior year. It's just a way to protect her. It wasn't that I cared to coach. (laughs) I was really just there to really protect her from the nonsense. And this is when I was, you know, training to qualify for, you know, national teams and Olympic teams and that sort of thing. But it was just a way to try to to try to protect my sister. And um, to your earlier point, this is why. We have to like share our stories. This is why we have to continue to push representation and inclusion because as long as, you know, these sports, especially sports like fencing, remain this predominantly white space, you give, I think, permission for people to behave in that manner, behave in a manner that is, you know, that affects our children in a negative way It makes them feel as if they don't belong.
0: You know, when I was 14, I think, I was, I think it was one of our playoff games um in soccer. And it was a big deal. Definitely not state. Definitely only the city. But I remember they do a lineup. They ask the girls to lift up their shirts to see belly button rings. Girl after girl lifts it up, lifts it up, lifts it up. They get to me and I'm like, I, I can't do it. And the ref sat there for maybe three or four minutes debating with the coaches. The coach was like, this is our center forward. We need her. And I was mortified. Like, I remember, I'm not a shy person. I remember wanting to disappear And when I think about how I dealt with that as a 14 or 15-year-old, I just stopped having friends and family come to games. I was like, I just want to play. I don't want to deal with this, right? I didn't have the analysis or, I guess, foresight that we'd have now to be like, no, like, I wasn't the only girl. There was definitely somebody after me who had some other restriction who was treated in a similar way because actually my whole team was mostly white, right? And like that that's another one of those memories from childhood that when I think about it, I just cringe. Because they they really tried hard. And I, I remember actually, I think I scored like the final goal for that game. I was just mad. I used it to fuel me. But it was like if anybody treated my daughter like that, I would lose my mind, right? And I think it was definitely a tactic to get me off my game. It was super embarrassing. All the parents were watching. The game was almost like going to start late. And it's And I never contextualized it in the way that you just discussed it. But it, it, it makes sense, and we do see it time and time again, unfortunately, right? That was a big
1: part of, like, the King Richard, Serena, and Venus Williams story, too. Oh, I mean, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that these kind of things, like, still happen. And why is it that, you know, you feel like you need a parent with you, or even as a kid, you feel like you need, like, permission to uh, stand up for yourself, whether it be, like, hindsight or you know having someone with you or even seeing someone in that situation previous to you in order for you to to realize okay this actually isn't okay mm. but i mean when i think of serena and venus their their career just in their even their early moments changed the way i saw myself as an athlete mm. because i saw so many similarities to the sport of tennis and the sport of fencing but also any black girl, no matter where on earth they lived, saw themselves in Serena and Venus because there were so many things about them and the way that they showed up that I feel like resonated with us as a community and we were able to see ourselves in them. So again, not that tennis and fencing, right, from just like the sport itself may seem, you know, to mirror one another, but really to me it was more about the community. And the participants of the sport itself when you think of tennis especially like in those like early you know preteen levels it's predominantly white space and it's the same thing with fencing and those efforts as we do see in like King Richard you know to keep Serena and Venus you know not feeling like a part of that community or not feeling like they should be there that's something that you see played out in sports like fencing on, you know, at the high school level, even at like the youth and like junior levels.
0: I'm very happy that you are where you are. So you can use the way they treated you as an example. At the very least, they will not treat other people like that, I hope. But it's definitely a larger lesson for people. And I'd imagine getting into the sport itself took a whole lot more than your mom walking past an auditorium, right? So like, when you were in high school, did you just try and qualify for the team? And at what point were you thinking, okay, I'm going to use this as a ticket to college. I'm going to think about the Olympics. Like I could really do this. How did that
1: journey evolve? So I, I've mentioned this, but my, this high school program, uh, Columbia high school, this is the strongest program in the country. Like in the sport of fencing, there are over a hundred high schools in the state of New Jersey that have it. So you won't find that in any other state in the United States. Uh, so it's, you know, a popular sport in New Jersey to play. And this township that my parents happened to move to happened to have, you know, the strongest program. I remember when I got to high school, I was telling my friends I wanted to try out for the fencing team and this was going to be a ticket to college. You know, I looked at the top 10 colleges in the country and they all had fencing programs. So for me, it was like an easy decision on whether or not I would fence. But I remember that first day of tryouts, my friends who were also African American came to tryouts with me and they were like, absolutely not. You know, <laughs> there were over 100 kids in the school cafeteria that show up for tryouts. And they were like, no, there's no way we're doing this. This is embarrassing, you know, because we're freshmen. <laughs> They're like, we're not putting, you know, our social capital on the line to fence with you. So I stay and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go to a good university. Like you'll see. Like that was kind of my response to them not trying out for fencing with me. But this program was really unique and that they I don't even know if tryouts meant anything. So it was kind of like everybody gets to be on the team. And when I joined, it was like two left feet for anyone who's tried fencing for the first time. They can attest to just kind of like the awkwardness that comes with fencing. Like, we don't really do anything that requires us to kind of shift our body. Like, if fencing is dependent on your handedness. So, if you're right handed, you're shifting your body so that, you know, your right hand is forward, your left foot is kind of behind you. And it's like this linear path that you're, you know, embarking on as an athlete. And it's just, it's difficult. So, I was not good to say the least. But this program being so good, I think in part of its success really lent itself to how embracing it was of everyone, no matter what you brought to the table, whether it was skill as an athlete, maybe you were like a really great cheerleader, maybe you were a great armor and you were able to fix, you know, team equipment. It kind of didn't matter. Everybody found, you know, their role to play in helping create this award winning program, you know, this championship program. So, it was, I think, a gift for me to be a part of this, this sports team and that be my first experience in high school. I did not have those experiences as a multi-sport athlete. Like I fenced, I played volleyball in the fall, fenced in the winter and played softball in the spring. And I didn't have that experience with any other sports that I played. Like I, I played volleyball with my friends, like my closest friends in high school, but Looking back, I realized that even those closest friends can maybe say things that are not healthy and empowering, that may not make you feel the best, that don't help you show up as your most authentic self or help you show up in a way that is going to benefit the team. Or being the only black kid on the softball team was honestly a horrible experience for me. And I was made to feel like I was the black kid on the team and it was just I mean I didn't play softball for that long I think I only played for two years but it wasn't long before I realized that yes volleyball was fun but fencing I was really really good fencer uh, by the time I was a junior in high school and I was leaving high school practice my mom was phenomenal she would pick me up from high school practice volleyball practice after working a full-time job my mom was an educator Uh, She picked me up from high school volleyball practice with food in a Tupperware container, remind me to do my homework on the way to the train station, and drop me off at the train station to catch the train into New York City where I would fence. Hmm. And that was just kind of my life for you know those next two years. I was always on the train into New York to pursue like my fencing and to try to get better. But you know, you ask the question of like when I knew. Or when I thought about the Olympics, I've always thought about fencing as a ticket to go to a good college that was that was the plan the like and that was it. It wasn't anything you know super it didn't have like a lot of layers to it. I just wanted to use sport to go to a good university. I come from a large family and one of five kids. my dad's both my parents are retired now, but my dad was a cop. My mom was a teacher. And if I want to go to the top school, you know, these schools at the time were forty, fifty thousand dollars a year. I need to find a way to pay to go to school. I didn't want, you know, these loans that, you know, would put me in debt when I graduated. So I wanted to find a way to go to school. And by the time I was a senior, I was offered a partial academic scholarship to go to Duke. And um, I also fenced while I was there. So I feel like those pieces that I had you know, really thought a lot into as a kid kind of came together in being recruited to fence for Duke. But when I graduated from Duke and I graduated in the middle of a recession, I was studying for the LSAT and applying to law schools, but at the same time I decided I wanted to, you know, keep fencing. And I don't know, something in me said that I wasn't done with fencing. I couldn't I honestly like couldn't really put my finger on it. But I knew that I was a really good collegiate fencer. But I went to a school where like fencing program was okay, it wasn't great. And I was like the best person to come out of that program. Mm. But I knew that leaving New York, I was leaving that opportunity to really pursue fencing like professionally. And then having the opportunity to go back after college, I just felt like there was something I was missing, right? Like there was a piece of that puzzle that I, I couldn't, I didn't really figure out yet, but I knew that there was more left in the tank. And so I switched coaches. And I remember the first day I was working with him, he said that I could be one of the best fencers in the world. And at the time I kind of thought he was crazy, but it was really refreshing, right? I had a coach that was a total misogynist that found ways to make me feel horrible about myself. I had friends who I fenced with who you know, were told that they were too fat, he would ask them to lose 10 pounds before they came back to practice. He would try to regulate the things that we would eat as female athletes. And he like you know wouldn't show up to our matches. We competed domestically all over the country. He would find a way to show up to the guys' matches, but always miss the girls' matches. And it was just not a healthy place, I think, to be a young woman and want to do well, but not have that support. So thank God I had, you know, the just, I think the awareness to change coaches and change to someone who at least was supportive. You Mm -hmm. know, if he wasn't anything, I just felt like the fact that he saw what I saw myself was a breath of fresh air for me. And at this time, I'd never been to an international competition before. I had never competed on the senior level. So I had no domestic ranking as a senior athlete I had no international world ranking and here I was you know like 21 trying to create a career as an athlete and it's difficult because you have I mean even my mentor I fenced for a foundation at the time and even you know the Peter Westbrook Foundation the coaches and athletes there everybody thought I was crazy they're like she's never been on a team before you know when things have never been done, people have a hard time seeing it through. Mm-hmm. And when you looked at Team USA, everybody had been on junior teams, had been on cadet teams, had, you know, competed at world championships. And I'd never done any of those things. So I kind of threw caution to the wind and just decided to work hard. And it wasn't before long I qualified for my first national team with this new coach. I'll never forget my first world championships in Paris. It was, it was an experience I'll never forget. You know, my mom went with me, my sister, my sister Brandilyn, who passed, she was there. And I was competing in a country that, and, I mean, I'd been at that point to, to France a few times, but to fence, to be a fencer and compete at world championships, you know, it's like, it's like the Super Bowl because France, you know, originated in Europe, originated in France and I mean, French people just really, you know, have a love for this sport. So we fenced at the Grand Palais. It was really, really beautiful, this ornate, you know, older structure. And it was just really beautiful done. And what I thought was so cool is even though, you know, I'm American, the fact that I was Muslim and wore hijab, there were just tons of Muslim people in the audience who cheered for me. Hmm. And, you know, no matter what country they were from, they could be from Tunisia or Egypt or, you know, just French people who happen to be Muslim and love seeing, you know, the last name Muhammad on the back of an athlete. It was just fun to have people cheer for me in that way. And I feel like I thought every single world championships, every single tournament was going to be like that. And so you're kind of chasing that high. I did really well at that tournament and you're just kind of chasing that high. But I feel like fencing was a roller coaster that I got on and I just kind of never got off of. Once I qualified for that first national team, I was just like, you know, on the next national team and on the next national team. And I mean, it was, it was hard. Hardest thing I've ever done is qualify for an Olympic team, but the adversity and challenges that I met as a professional athlete on Team USA, those moments as a kid don't even come close to the difficulties that I faced, you know, as an adult.
0: Hmm. And and I'm looking forward to getting into that because I think it's a very important part of your story. And to your point earlier, it has to be talked about in order to ensure it gets doesn't happen to others. But you know, to kind of talk a, or spend a minute on you playing volleyball and you playing softball. I was just listening to an interview by David Epstein who wrote the book Range, and he was comparing in his work. He effectively looks at athletes, um, and he has a book before that I think called The Sports Gene, where he like focuses on athletes, right? So in this particular comparison, he was comparing Tiger Woods to Roger Federer. There is this theory that it takes 10,000 hours to get good at anything. With 10,000 hours with the violin, you could be the world's best violinist. 10,000 hours on a skateboard, you could be the world's best skateboarder. And he effectively looked at those two athletes and said, even though the Tiger Woods story is the story that's known, and before he was five, he was putting and working on his golf. Federer didn't start tennis till he was a teenager. He was a generalist before that. And the conclusion is that some of the world's best athletes, musicians, scientists, artists, inventors start as generalists, not specialists, because they figure out what they're good at, what they don't like, and they're able to really focus on the craft that they decide on and use the skills from the previous crafts to push themselves forward. So I was literally just listening to this interview and hearing you talk. People probably treated you like you should have been Tiger Woods. But the untold narrative is that the Roger Federers actually are the majority of experts in their fields. Um, not to add the diversity layer, which is like the part they aren't willing to admit that they made harder for you. Which I have no doubts people put extra barriers in your way outside from being somebody who started the sport later. Um, and I think that's a great segue to the Olympics.
1: Yeah. Um. I mean, just to I think piggyback on your point, I, th- I in playing different sports, I saw what I didn't like in those sports, and for me. I mean, this may seem really taboo to say, but I'm just not a team sports kind of gal. I just never like to lose. And I found in volleyball and softball that there were other people who did not have the same desire to win as I did. And that bugged me, right? That that maybe some people would show up to practice and not to take away from personal experiences. maybe. You know, someone wasn't feeling well or comes from a difficult situation at home. Who knows? But for me, all I know is it's game day. We need to win. (laughs) It's
0: (laughs) the most trash thing you've ever said. And I love it. I love everything about it because it reflects that you literally win in every element of your life.
1: I just, I couldn't. I didn't like it. I, I didn't like it. I didn't like that other people were, who didn't, who weren't willing to work as hard were a big piece of the puzzle of whether or not I could win. And I found that in fencing, it was like the polar opposite. I was, you know, the sole commander of the ship. I was responsible if it sank or, you know, or if, you know, I was able to, to win. And I think what I've always loved about sport is that there's always something that you can learn and there's stuff, something you can take away from it, whether you win or you lose. And to speak to those 10,000 hours you you talk about, I felt like I was putting in those 10,000 hours. I was like the first person in the gym and the last person to leave. Mm-hmm. And I just took sport so seriously where I was eating, sleeping, drinking, breathing, fencing. Like if I wasn't actually training, you know, if I wasn't fencing, I was with, you know, my, the sports psychologist trying to work on my mental game. If I wasn't with her, I was with my physical trainer, if I wasn't with him, I was watching video. And if I wasn't doing that, I was like, literally commuting to or from practice, or sleeping, like you were doing one of those things every single day. And I always say that there's a fine line between Olympian and crazy, right? Mm -hmm. Like, who knows where it is, but like, you have to be crazy to even embark on the jersey, but you, you be even crazier to, like, actually get it done. Because if you don't want it more than you want to breathe, then you don't want it enough. I
0: mean, that's, it's incredible. And as you're talking, it actually reflects even my, like, work journey, you know, where it's you kind of put that time in and you're focusing on every element and figuring things out. Um, and I think that, that the mentality and the thought process, even though your application of it was probably the most intense during the Olympics, I think, like, the thought process and the mentality applies to literally anything in life right like Mm -hmm. focus and being able to evaluate all elements will get you there and and it's incredible I mean it's really cool to see and so you qualify for the Olympics when when did you how does that happen like do you just win enough titles to get a letter from the Olympics to be like you're coming like how does that happen how does one qualify (laughs)
1: Um, it it'll vary between sports and by country. Like some country selection process will be different from the United States. So for the US fencing team, there are three different weapons and they're obviously men and women, so I fence women's saber. And I guess in you in sorry, just backtrack. Um, there are different ways and paths of qualification depending on, you know, what country you represent, right? Uh they'll the qualifying process will be different depending on what country you compete for. But in our sport, uh as American fencers, we have a point system and we have I think there's about eight World Cups and four domestic competitions. And essentially you just want to accumulate points, whether those be at those domestic competitions or international competitions at the end of those where the when the chips all fall you want to be at the top of the of the heap and top 3 in the United States qualify for for the Olympic team so in fencing we have a year long qualification process so in those series of world cups and domestic competitions you know you're traveling from like if you train in New York maybe you'll have a domestic competition in Cincinnati, and then you have to come back to New York, and then you go to a World Cup in Moscow, you spend two weeks there because you have a training camp, and then you come back, and you know, then maybe you have another domestic competition, or then maybe you bounce to Beijing for a World Cup, and it's just kind of like that, you're just ping-ponging around the globe for almost a year in that qualification process, and my qualification process, you know, honestly, I went into it thinking that I don't know if they'll choose me, right, because the way that the selection process works is, yeah, you want to be top three in the country to qualify. You're automatically on the team. If you fall fourth, then the the national coach can select that fourth person as a replacement athlete. And so he could say, if he had in fourth, I'll, you know, go with someone else. So I remember talking to my mentor, Peter Westbrook at the time, and I said to him, you know, what if they don't select me, right? And I remember him saying, you know, like that, even that thought process was not what he would expect from me as like a woman of faith. And he reminded me, you know, Peter's a deacon at his church and he leads every conversation, you know, just um, with God in mind. And he kind of reminded me in that moment that God was in control of what would happen during that qualification process, not the national, not the national coach, not the, you know, the team manager, not any of the athletes, not the officials, just God. And whatever, you know, was meant for me, whatever was went, written for me, you know, what happened. So I would have to abandon that thought process that was really a hindrance to performing well, when you think about it. He reminded me that I would have to like abandon that thought process in order to even just get through the year. And I will forever remember that conversation because it just. I think centered me in a way that really put my faith first, that reminded me that I had to have faith in every step of this journey. And I had, and it had to precede any fears that I had. And it was probably like an outer body experience for me throughout the year because it was tough. You know, it was dealing with a national coach who made it very clear that he did not want me there, dealing with, you know, team, quote unquote, teammates, because yes, we do all represent Team USA. And we all, you know, want to go to the Olympics. But at the end of the day, you could cut that tension with a knife, like people wanted to be on the team ahead of you, right? They didn't want you on the team because they wanted to be on a team. So you just kind of felt that energy all the time. And I'll never forget, I was at a World Cup, or training for a World Cup in France. And in Orléans, France, and we were at um French national training center. It's called INSEP. And my sister's there. Uh, she's at the training camp. My mom is in France with us for this World Cup. So we're at this training camp. And I remember I'm, I'm fencing with a French woman. Her name is Cécile Breder. And I remember falling while we were fencing. And I remember my face hitting the floor. I have on my fencing mask, but it still hurt. <laughs> I remember my face standing on the floor. And the next thing I remember, I'm in the training room. And one thing I noticed was that every, this is an international training camp. So you have Spanish athletes, Chinese athletes, the French athletes that are there, obviously, but like Russians, you name a country, like everyone's there. And I remember lying there crying because I know that I've seemingly broke my foot. But my sister's by my side and all these athletes come in to, you know, essentially send you well wishes, you know, they're, they're thinking of you. And I realized that, wow, like not one American has come in here to say anything to me, mm-hmm. you know, people from other countries, but no Americans have come in. And I think that was just kind of this like really eye opening moment, because at this point, i had been on the US national team for years, and there are women that I've spent an uncomfortable amount of time with, you know, Mm -hmm. just at World Cups, at competitions, at training camps and random parts of the world together. And I'm hurt, you know, I'm in pain. I don't know what happened to my foot, but I know that something's very wrong. And like, even in that moment, like I felt like there was almost like a lack of humanity In Team USA, not coming to see if I was okay. Thank God that my mom, my sisters were there. I don't know if you've ever been to to Paris or to France. It's a lot of like up and down on the metro. Downstairs, upstairs, downstairs, upstairs. And imagine broke foot, fencing bag. Like I still, we have carry-ons because we literally carry our, our kit, our fencing kit with us onto planes. Uh, That way, if the airline does lose your bag, you have all your stuff to compete with. Um, So I have my fencing bag and my carry-on. If it wasn't for my mom and my sister to help me navigate the metro, I don't even know how I would have got to this tournament. So long story short, we're sitting in Austerlitz train station. I think that's how you pronounce it. And we take the train from this train station to Orleans. So we're at a train station in France, in Paris, and we're taking a train station or taking a train to, uh, to Orléans and the national coach calls a team meeting. And I have no idea what this team meeting is on about, but I like, you know, have my crutches and I like, you know, take my crutches, I hobble over to this little cafe. We're at at this train station and he literally turns to me and he is just like, why didn't you come to practice, ifti and I'm confused because I'm, I my foot is elevated at this point. <laughs> the crutches are like leaning against my shoulder. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like I broke my foot. And he's like, you should have been at practice. How could you not come to practice? And I remember just like crying and saying like you know not only is my foot broken you've never come to check on me the team trainer is here why didn't you ask him you know like it was just like this really confusing moment for me but also it just felt really polarizing because there were not just team usa athletes but other american athletes that i didn't even know who were at the world cup and i'm like this could have been a private conversation how did this team meeting become about me and Mm -hmm. i think that was the only moment in my career where I allowed them to get a reaction out of me. And I still, to this day, like regret that moment because I was so upset. Like I remember crying and just being like, you know, infuriated. But also I think understanding that the line had kind of been drawn in the sand, right? Mm -hmm. That like I was by myself. And at that World Cup, the trainer taped my foot up and I was just out there. It was me and it was God and that was it, right? I have been so well at that competition. That was my first competition in the Olympic qualification season where I won a medal. And to me, that just kind of set set a precedent that even in a difficult moment, like a physically difficult moment, I was able to show up for myself. I was proud that I stood up for myself, but not Happy with the tears, and I think that that's just a and I think that that's almost like a flaw of society, right like to equate tears with being weak and i I still don't believe that I showed like weakness in that moment. I think I was showing that I was human and almost like trying to show them like how they just lacked kindness and like their moral compass was off, <laughs> and like almost like they lacked humanity and not wanting to be to show compassion to me someone who was hurt but regardless of of that 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 happening i did really well and i feel like i set myself up to qualify for the team and but i didn't even think of it that way i just thought okay that's one competition off you know just keep going keep going and so a few competitions after that i'm in um athens greece i'm leaving a training camp in Poland. I'm uh, on my way to Athens, Greece with the team, and I'm in an airport lounge in Poland, and I eat salmon. I like smoked salmon, eating the salmon. We get to Greece. That night before the competition, I am violently ill. Like It's coming out both ways. I'm so sick. My mom is there. My sister's there, but they both traveled from home. So my sister has to fence the next day. So they're just like essentially trying to mute me out. My mom is pissed because I'm sick. So she's like, I traveled all this way and you're sick. So she's done with me. She's not even talking to me. (laughs) And I just remember lying on the floor in this hotel bathroom in Greece thinking that I'm going to die. I find out from like our team doctor that there's like four or five other girls who... Also, ate the salmon who are also really sick. So, the unfortunate thing for them is they have to compete the next day. They don't fare too well because it's hard, difficult to do anything when you have food poisoning. I, at that time, was like top, I don't know, top 10 in the world or whatever. So, I don't fence that d- the first day of competition. I have a buy into the second day. That second day of competition, I fenced really well. I don't know how it was from God. I have no idea how it happened, but alhamdulillah, Alive fenced really well and won, I think, a bronze medal that day. And it was awesome, right? Because you're continuing to show that regardless of like the lack of support from my fellow team members, Team USA members, I'm able to show up for myself. And it's just, I think, an acknowledgement to the hard work and like those hours, those 10,000 hours we talked about, I feel like they're really showing up for me. But I remember going, getting home after uh, that flight from Athens back to Newark and just like doing the usual, like scheduling, you know, massage appointments and figuring out my lesson times with my coach and that sort of thing. And I got like a ping, a Google alert saying that, you know, first, Muslim woman qualifies for Team USA. And I was like, hmm, wonder who she is. And I click on it, and it's me. <laughs> and I'm, like, screaming. And I remember, like, bringing my computer and screaming with my parents, and we're celebrating. But makes me think, like, wow, Team U! like, how did, I found out on Google, but for sure, USA fencing knew I qualified. Yes. But that shows you how fractured Team USA is. And, I mean who knows i'm like maybe these people never wanted me to qualify but you know god is good and i was able to qualify <laughs> like maybe despite... she'll never see it maybe she just won't right. know and she won't show maybe up she just won't know. Her. but i think that that was like the one of the funniest things that's ever happened to me in my life is falling, finding out that i qualified for the olympics through a google alert
0: not only is it hilarious it actually shines a light on how intelligent you were in choosing a solo sport um for like especially particularly a. Dominantly white sport Because if if you were still On the volleyball Or the softball team There's no objectivity The way there's objectivity In a solo sport Where it's your points Right Like on a soccer team I could be the center forward That can't play with my left foot So you could boot me If you don't like me Which is what would have happened If I were Mm -hmm. you On your Mm -hmm. team With your people But they effectively Somebody's objectively looking at the points in your performance and you objectively won. <laughs> they can yeah. be as pissed about it as they want, but you are amongst the best in the world, period.
1: Yeah. I was able to climb from like not, no ranking. I'll never forget my first World's Cup in London. This is back in like 2008 or nine, maybe 2008. I was ranked like 250th or something like that, 250th and like i've climbed to world number 7 and this is just a testament to hard work and faith but also just really like self determination and i always say that like there's not it's not the end of the world you know when people don't believe in you i always see it as like motivation like we can always be those you know like super unassuming characters as hijabis right as women of color, where people just don't expect things of us. And that's just an ill of society, where society has these limited expectations of us as religious women, but also women of color. And I don't know, I've just always thought of that as a challenge. Like, what can I do? Yeah. Despite what society says, you yeah. know.
0: And with the baseline so low, you've made it easy to overperform. <laughs> like, I'm already <laughs> than average, but you set me up for this one.
1: Oh, I mean, yeah. One of the cool things about sport is that you really can just like challenge yourself and push yourself. And if you're willing to put those 10,000 hours in, it's possible. And even when you think about, you know, what you're able to do as like a businesswoman, as a business owner, it's just, no one sees, right. The hustle, the grind, the lack of sleep, the tears, or even the frustration. Like people don't see that. They only see the prize and I think with social media, people think that everything and anything's achievable, but you know it's not. You have to be willing to put in that work.
0: I, I mean, you definitely spoke directly to me, and i yeah, you know as well as I know. I think we we know about each other's day to day well enough to know that our life is much more than what you see on Instagram. And most of our life is wildly hard work in different ways, whether it's mm-hmm. you writing a book or running your brand, Luella, or whatever it may be.
1: In me, just like work, 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 work,
0: kids. Work, well, work, I.
1: Work anyone who asks, I always say that you are a unicorn because of all the different hats that you wear. How you find time to be on Instagram, girl, I do not know because I don't think I've posted once this year because I just find social media to be so overwhelming, but also like it's just not realistic, right? I'm like, I I don't know. There's something about it that I, I do feel like can provide reprieve if you do live like a crazy life like Layla Shakely, but I don't know. I think that for me and just constantly feeling overwhelmed during this pandemic, right, and just trying to float right now in life, I I find that taking a break from social media for me has been my reprieve, you know?
0: I mean, it makes sense. You, you do a lot. Um, your average day is always, it's always hilarious because you're like, oh my gosh, I got nothing done today. I blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, wow, I, I love the lens she sees herself with. I'm not going to try to change it. So I'll let her keep believing she didn't do much because that's m- my type of girl.
1: I'm I'm floating.
0: Grab myself with Uptosh's definition of floating. Uptosh's definition of floating is um. One day on another podcast, I'll have her define it for you, but not today (laughs) because we're we're at the peak of the story, or at least the first peak, which is the Olympics. And so you, I'd imagine you have what like a four, five, six month period to just work your behind off.
1: I qualified in February, and my first competition was August. Oh sorry, my first um the Olympics were in August, so however long that is, I guess that is about five months. But what's so interesting about that period of time is that you're not an Olympian until you compete, right? So there's a lot that could happen from February thirteenth to August thirteenth like mm-hmm. a lot. I know people who qualified who didn't compete because of injury, so you're trying to stay healthy, but then also there was just, yeah, there's there's a lot going on. We still have World Cups that are happening, so you're still trying to put yourself in the best position so that you get a good seating at the Olympics and that sort of thing. So Also, I qualified at the height of the presidential election, mm. and so I don't know if we could all just mentally rewind back to 2016 when it was like then Trump was just a candidate and he was spewing horrible things. And it was just like a bunch of Republican, like candidates going back and forth to see who could be like the most horrible and deplorable towards the Muslim community. And back then, you know, the Muslim ban was just a proposed ban back then. And so my, every interview that I did, kind of centered not around the olympics um necessarily about what it would mean to become the first muslim woman re- first muslim woman in hijab to represent team USA but it was a lot about like what those words meant to our community and so i felt like me qualifying was a marker for our community in a sense that i just showing up as myself and being authentic to myself. I was challenging the misconceptions and this horrible norm that society has created about Muslim about who a Muslim woman is. As someone who's African American and not Arab, I'm like American by birth. I'm not, you know, I don't have an attachment to like another nation. I speak English. I'm telling you verbally that I'm not oppressed, that I choose to wear hijab and I just feel like I was, you know, flipping that narrative on its head, right? Mm -hmm. Like when people think about a Muslim woman, they definitely don't think about us competing at the Olympic games. Mm -hmm. And I just thought it was this cool moment to to challenge people and to think of us, you know, in in more ways than just this one dark narrative that we see played out in Hollywood, in media, all the time. So I, I think that when I qualified in February, I knew the journey was bigger than me, just in that moment. When I first interviewed, I was like, wait a second, this is not about fencing. This is not about necessarily, you know, the Olympics. This is about changing a narrative for an entire group of people around the globe.
0: Which you would successfully play a huge role in. And it is it is fascinating, like the timing that Donald Trump and other candidates were using <laughs> Islam they're effectively saying it's inherently impossible to be like somebody who is Muslim and American by using, you know, supporting things like the Muslim ban, right? Like, but what does that even mean? And meanwhile, here you are representing our nation in sport at the highest level, and not only do you represent the nation, you make it to Brazil and you leave with a medal and a ring, right? What, what was that like? Yeah.
1: Well, I have to sit, tell this really quick story. I was at Team USA media day before the Olympics. And imagine like a sea of reporters around you. So you're like this dot and there's just like a bunch of microphones pointed towards you. Like this happens. Right. And I remember, um, a guy asking, you know, like every reporter is like waiting for their turn. And this reporter asked, he said, uh, what country are you from? And I'm wearing an Olympic jacket I'm at team USA media day. So I'm like generally confused. So I like, you know, lean over into the mic and I was like, the United States and like lean back. Cause I'm like, what is he talking about? And he says, no, what country are you from? from? Like, and then he, of course he's to explain it for me. He says like, where are your parents from? So at this point I'm like offended, wildly offended and I asked him, I say, are you familiar with African American history in this country? And he like paused and he said, yes. I said, okay, well, I'm from the United States, period. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> like, it was just one of the most bizarre things. But again, like, as Muslim women, there's the, even this idea that we like cannot be American, like, we yeah, have right? to be from somewhere else.
0: Right like no, no not the identity you want the identity you
1: really are <laughs>
0: like is right was being asked and right you're like, hold, hold on a second
1: that's uh but to answer your question i mean i i still have a hard time believing that that happened at the olympics i i was that person at the olympics who was just happy to be there mm-hmm. because qualifying was so challenging the adversity that i had faced the obstacles that I felt like I had to overcome. And I talk like obviously at length about these things specifically, like in my memoir, Proud. But it was just so, so difficult that just being at the Olympics was really emotional for me. And I remember when the team event, when my team was able to win bronze, I remember being on the podium and just shaking my head in disbelief because I felt like, This was something even in my wildest dreams I never could have imagined. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: In our family, even, like my mom, my sisters, my dad, everybody knew you can't even say the word Olympics around me because like I would kind of look at you, you know, in a way like the Olympics to me always seemed like it was so far fetched that if I said it, if I spoke the words, it would almost like disappear. That's Mm -hmm. how much of a dream it always seemed to me. So to not only qualify and then win a medal, it was just like it was a, I think, just a moment in my life where I felt like I was just waiting for someone to pinch me and wake me up, right? I just felt so blessed to be there, opportunity to show, I think, us as Muslim women, to show our girls like what's capable. And yeah, I just, I don't know. It, it, I think it's one of those moments in my life that I'll never forget.
0: Well, I mean, I don't think anybody will forget it because you were also star of the show, whether you liked it or not, like you were right next to Michael Phelps at the opening ceremony. And there was all sorts of press and media. And I think the political timing lent, you know, I'm sure in, in many ways lent itself in a good way. But in terms of being able to focus on sport also provided probably a bit of a challenge because the whole world knew who Ibtihaj Muhammad was.
1: Yeah, I mean, at, at the Olympics, you're in a bubble, right? You are either training or... You're doing an interview like we can't at least I wasn't looking at the news or what, you know, people at home were seeing. You're just trying to be so hyper focused on your goal because it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. There are millions of people around the world who hope, you know, to go to the Olympics one day. There are far, far, far fewer, like point zero zero one percent of those people actually go. And then a fraction of those who actually go actually win a medal. So Mm -hmm. it's like when you're there, everybody, like the energy is so interesting. Like you can tell who's competed and who's done and who still has, you know, yet to compete because those who, you know, still haven't had their game day yet, it's like, they're just hyper-focused and really trying to capitalize on this moment, having qualified because you're always thinking about what you've put into this moment. There's so many sacrifices. Like I can't tell you how many weddings I missed yours included because you got <laughs> married while I was at the Olympics, Sorry but <laughs> I can't even tell you like how many weddings you miss, how many moments you miss. Like I missed the birth of my niece. You just miss so much. Right. But it's all for the, like in the hopes that you're able to realize this dream and it's going to the Olympics, maybe winning a medal. And, So that's why I just felt like, you know, outer body experience. I can't believe this is happening. Like, and, and I had it, I won an Olympic medal with my mom being there, who's Mm -hmm. supported me back when, you know, people thought I was crazy for not utilizing my Duke degree. (laughs) My dad, he'd only seen me compete. I would say like, Maybe this is my dad's third time in life seeing me fence. (laughs) He's like, maybe, (laughs) maybe, maybe it's his third time seeing me fence. Um, my brother, who had never seen me fence before, Faiza, who my sister Faiza, she fenced with me every single moment of every single day. This is my training partner. This is someone who I've traveled to like you know 40 different countries with. This is like, if I'm peanut butter, she's jelly, we are like, so intertwined. Like, that's how it feels, you know. Um, So that medal, I feel like was for Faiza. She was so close to making the Olympic team. She just missed out. She was like that unlucky number five. But that medal felt like it was hers. My nephew, who at the time, I think was like five or six, I feel like for him, when he, his sports heroes always center around women. And I feel like that's a sign of the times for you to have a young boy who thinks of, you know, like his aunt or his Kala, you know, or, you know, like Serena Venus or Megan Rapinoe, Alex Morgan, whoever these like female athletes are. I just think it's so cool that we live in a time and place where our young boys are even celebrating female athletes. I just think that's really cool. So to have like, you know, 10 members of my family and my best friend there. Um, it was just a a moment for me that I'll never forget.
0: I, I I don't think most of the world will forget it. So we could definitely <laughs> see how you would never forget it. And, and so you leave the Olympics and you kind of start building. What is the start of a legacy through a Barbie and a book and Luella and you're effectively now like you're a businesswoman, right? So I'd love to hear about life after the Olympics. Um, yeah.
1: Well, um, life of the Olympics has been really interesting. It's it's a lot. I mean, I, I don't think that I could have really, I think, imagined what life post-Olympics would be like. I knew that I didn't want to keep fencing for too long. So I fenced for one more year after the Olympics. And my last world championships were 2017 in Leipzig, Germany. And when I stopped fencing, you just have more time. You have more time to do appearances. You have more time to do passion projects. And for me, uh, I always knew that I wanted to draft and kind of write down the things that had happened to me in sport through a memoir. And so in 2018, my memoir, Proud, dropped. And I also, that same year, released the young adult adaptation of that memoir. And I think that the memoir was an opportunity for me to kind of unpack the trauma, but also to hold people accountable. Like, I got a lot of, like, mean messages when Proud came out, from coaches, from just people who just weren't happy. But, you know, it's hard to, to sometimes see your behavior like written down or articulated by another person. But I think that those are kind of difficult conversations we have to have with ourselves or even through someone else's words and the way that they saw, the way that you treated them. And I am the reason why I always feel like proud was almost like a tell-all and that it kind of peeled back the layers of what it's like to exist in, you know, American fencing and why things need to change. Like when I look at like USA fencing just had this whole rehiring of national coaches, out of six national coaches, I don't even know how many assistant coaches they hired. There's one black person, one minority of all these coaches. And I feel like it just speaks to, you know, the ills that still exist within that world. And I'm hoping that my story sheds light in a way that encourages change, encourages better relationships uh, with athletes and coaches and managers, and really just helps us understand that our actions have very real consequences for athletes and their mental health. I talk a lot about depression in my book and how I was able to overcome, like, super dark moments in my career. But moving from, you know, the memoir, the young adult memoir, and then deciding to write children's books. Like, you and I know that when we were kids, we didn't see a lot of books that had, you know, hijabi characters or had characters that looked like us. Like, it was hard for my mom to find books that had brown characters in them. And unless they were like historical picture books about Jackie Robinson or Althea Gibson or something like that. And so to have a, to be able to author a children's book that is centered around a Muslim character who has brown skin, who tells the story of wearing hijab and this first person perspective, it being really beautiful. I know that it will mean a lot to our kids who, you know, who too will have their first day of wearing hijab to school. It not being demonized, but hopefully celebrated in a way that encourages all of our kids, whether they're Muslim or not, to embrace and celebrate those things that may make us appear different. And that was always the reason why I want to move into children's literature and why I stay there, inshallah, working on my... Second children's book right now, but it's been a wild ride post Olympics, but it's a lot of fun. I've had a clothing company for quite a long time now. It's called Luella, and Luella is just, you know, a bait. Luella is my baby. Luella is my passion project. It's, I love creating modest fashion. I love hopefully solving a problem that was I mean, I don't know if you remember Layla, but we had some really crazy outfits when we were preteens. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't just remember like I am fully traumatized
1: trauma traumatized like like it's it's fun to be a part of something that is providing a service for a community that is often forgotten right? To like our clothes that my sisters and I make at Luella, we manufacture in the United States. So either in Los Angeles or in New York. And I really challenge people to think about where their clothes are from. I try to, like, I try to be intentional about my purchasing, you know, practices and really just being aware of where things are made. Because this is like, I don't know. This is like one of the first times in our lives, just in the age of social media, as millennials, we have the opportunity to see things happening in real time. But also we have the opportunity to change and be, you know, like conduits and a part of that change. So I feel like I'm hopefully solving a problem that I saw in my community for so long and providing modest modest fashion, but also bettering my communities right by providing jobs here in the US and also making things affordable like everything doesn't need to be super expensive in order for it to be good in order for it to be fashionable and you know it's it's not always easy but i always want you know our pieces at Luwala to be accessible to everyone no matter you know what your paycheck looks like
0: I will never forget just layering and layering and layering working pants <laughs> with a dress on top and a jacket on top it, it was it was very tough and now I mean I have, I have a few Luella dresses you just put them on and you leave which was something that was very unheard of as little as honestly probably seven or eight years ago which is kind of wild wild so I highly highly encourage everybody to check it out and I'll link Luella in the show notes as well as links to the book and the Barbie and where can people find you, Ibtihaj?
1: Um, You can find me stalking Layla on Instagram. <laughs> uh, my handle is at Iftihaj. Also, I'm really active on Facebook. I think Facebook's the way you can connect with people from all over the place and also different age demographics on Facebook. I also have a website at iftihajmohammed.com if you want to keep up with me and the news and that sort of thing. But yeah, mostly just stalking Layla on Instagram.
0: (laughs) Well, I I look forward to linking her account so you guys can spend time stalking her. And thank you so much for making the time. I'm so excited to close this season out with you because you really are not only a sister to me, but like, you know, a beacon to the
1: community. So thank you. Thank you for having me. This was an amazing way for me to spend my morning. So appreciate you, love you, and can't wait to listen in. Inshallah, talk soon, Logan. Love you.